I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. So, Wit, I don't know if you remember, lo those many seasons ago, back in 2019, we did an episode on the 40th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution with Jasmine Darznik and Dina Nayari, two terrific writers. I do totally remember that um, episode, and I remember that the. Uh, I also remember the Iranian Revolution of 1979. Me too. Maybe a little bit. Me too. Wait, now hold on a second. <laughs> you were negative one, I think, oh. when that happened. I had to look you up on Wikipedia to find out. Ex- I don't. I don't know exactly what year you were born, but now I do. Yes. And it wasn't 1979. Negative one was a good year for me. I would. I would do a lot to be negative one again. <laughs> well, well, you. I mean, on this duo, I sometimes people say that you are the negative one. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> no, you would, you know, come on. You don't really want to go back to being negative one. I mean, no, although I have to say we are a podcast that talks about the news through the lens of literature. And it would be great if just for like a couple of weeks, the news. Here comes were... the negative one. I just want the news to be like a shade less dire, just a touch funnier. Or oh, fun at all. Nice. Just, I, you know, if we could have a news cycle about a celebrity doing something foolish or the president getting sick at dinner or just something like of that nature, that register, I would do a lot for that. Ah, the old days. I'm not going to be able to help you out with that because the fact is, like, doing this podcast for five years, I, I think you feel the same way. We keep seeing the same pattern over and over again. The forces of authoritarianism are, and tyranny, really, are making very overt and often successful efforts to suppress and beat back the forces of democracy. And there's a real battle going on here. You see this in Russia's war in Ukraine. You see it in Hungary, in Brazil, in Bangladesh, in Poland, in the U.S., where we have a ton of outright election deniers running for important state and federal offices right now. Um, 
this is making me feel like a waving of anxiety as you even say this. Um, that's true. And things are no different in Iran, whose recent nationwide protests will be the focus of our episode today. And to get some perspective on what's happening there, we're going to talk to Porchista Hakpur. Porchista's novel, Suns and Other Flammable Objects, which came out from Grove Atlantic in 2007, was a New York Times editor's choice. Her second novel, The Last Illusion, which came out from Bloomsbury in 2014, was a Kirkus Best Book of that year, a BuzzFeed Best Fiction Book of that year, and an NPR Best Book of that year. She is also the author of the acclaimed memoir, Sick, which chronicles the, quote, long, arduous discovery of her late-stage Lyme disease. But she's here to talk about her first collection of essays, Brown Album, Essays on Exile and Identity, as well as the protests currently going on in Iran. Porchista, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, discontent with the current government in Iran has a lot of sources, the pandemic, corruption, sanctions, economic collapse, just to name a few, at least according to what I've been reading. Um, but the current protests seem to have focused on the government's rules about the wearing of the hijab. Could you talk about the history of that rule and how it's if enforced in Iran? Yeah, so um, thank you for having me. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but to just put it briefly, um, since like 1979, the Islamic Republic of Iran, and we use that term to differentiate from when Iran was under the Shah's rule and other regimes, but again, the IRA, because I think there's some confusion about that, or the Islamic Republic of Iran, began making hijab compulsory um, and it became a big priority for them. And it only got worse and worse. By like 1983, they were making it um, not just mandatory, but there were sentences of lashes for women who weren't observing them properly um, for all sorts of laws, including massive fines and prison sentences for offenders. Um, and these laws have always been in place in Iran. They've never really gone away. What gets confusing for some people is that like around 1997 to 2005 under President Khatami, things were really different. Um, I mean, I say that again and I have to pause and explain a little, little different. Um, there was a, it was a little bit more lenient, the enforcement. So there was a little bit more leeway for women in how they wanted to present their hijab. And so that's where you get some of the, these videos and images of Iran where women were making them more fashionable or wearing them more loosely. It's not like the laws didn't exist. And in fact, sometimes people could pay off police to you know, not put them in prison for that. Other times they couldn't. It's all been chaotic, um, the enforcement of this on purpose. And that's by design to control people more because there's nothing more terrifying than telling someone something's against the law, but also making it somewhat at times random. But the laws, I do want to be really clear, the Islamic Republic of Iran has, has always put those in place and has always made that a priority. Um, and it's mystifying. Why? Other than, you know, the obvious, right? Uh, a desire to control women, a desire to control the whole population, um, a desire to control, you know, youth um, and to spread fear. And to me, I'm a Muslim, this, has nothing to do with Islam and the spirit in which people wear hijab or any sort of head covering. So this is where it's really disgusting and atrocious. Um, a lot of us have had relatives, me included, relatives and friends who've suffered very, very harshly 
in prisons in Iran. Many people just saw Evan prison burning the other day. And that's one of the, the most notorious prison in Iran, but I would argue the most notorious prison in the world for a good reason. I mean, the sort of atrocities that have happened in Evin are, you can't even mention some of the things that have happened to us um, and our people. It's not the, it's when we say torture, it's stuff that's beyond the imagination. So this is where a lot of our anger and rage comes from right now, because these laws, which they like to say are Islamic law or moral laws of some sort, are have nothing to do with Islam and have nothing to do with um, trying to serve people or create order or create a better Iran. Um, they're, they're literally just part of evil. So, you know. The current president, my understanding is sort of stepped up hijab enforcement in July, which started to lead to some of these protests. And then just to sort of give a timeline for the listeners, you know, these early protests were led by women and they in turn became the face of these protests. And in particular, uh, now you can tell me if I'm pronouncing this name right, because I've only ever read it. Masha Amini died on or around September 16th after being arrested on charges of not observing the hijab law. Could you talk about her case? Yes, her name is pronounced Mahsa Amini, but her actual name is Gina Amini. That's her legal, that's her Kurdish name, the name that her mother gave her. The government name, or what because Iran does not recognize Kurds as they should. They recognize them in a way, but they don't give them that um, because of anti-Kurd sentiment from the government, and which is also sometimes widespread. They um, sometimes don't call her by Gina Amini, but a lot of Iranians don't even know about that. Some do, some don't. But um, the hashtag is still like Massa Amini, but often Gina Amini also. Um, and so I like to use both if possible, um, even though I, of course, recognize that Gina Amini is her name. Um, so, yeah, Rice. So let's go to Ibrahim Raisi, the Iranian president who was elected in 2021. Um, he everybody was very afraid that when he got there, things were going to be more strict than ever. Um, and he sort of, my, my feeling is that he was capitalizing on, for instance, uh, what, he, what, what they were perceiving was like a return of like um, Islam's popularity, you could say. I mean, a lot of this stuff was in sync with when the Taliban came back in, in Afghanistan. So there was a little bit, they felt emboldened, let's say, right? And so, you know, it's rice is very complicated because the, his you know he'd have his daughter come on television and and try to you know soothe people and say he's very good and kind but iranian people are not easily fooled and so they had very good reason to be suspicious of rice and 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 his goal to make things um more strict in iran and to enforce the things that you know had seemed to be loosening a little bit again i use this very very cautiously because only for certain people in Iran, things might've looked more loose, right? Uh, there's a lot of issues around class and things like that, that, that are also key here. So, you know, when people, when he got actually inaugurated and now that he's been in office, uh, people's worst fears became reality. And there was like a return to how the earlier days of the Islamic Republic. And so things were, there's lots more censors, lots more monitoring of people, um, a lots more imprisonment, 
um, and a lot, and, and just creating an, a, a real atmosphere of fear. You know, it was like they were very, very nervous about social media and how that was empowering Iranians. Um, there was all sorts of like comments. I, I was reading a lot about people saying like, oh, this is bad hijab wearing and then this is good hijab wearing and things like that. So it's, it just became very uh, suspect obviously how his regime came in there. And I don't know anybody, I truly can't think of one person that liked Raisi or like really believed in him. Um, and, but yet, you know, he in a very suspicious election with very little trouble, he was elected and they, the Islamic Republic regime likes to create the optics that he's very popular, but um, that is not how me or people I know in Iran feel at all. We hate him. <laughs> and, and that's, I think, correct to hate him. And you can see now the fears really have become completely realized. So that's why you have a population that was ready to mobilize and fight this power because they knew what could happen here. So, you know, um, some people could say that the Khatami regime, 1997 to 2005, made people sort of complacent, thinking that things were really going to change, and they didn't. So maybe that was also a problem in its own way. But certainly this regime, very explicitly, very boldly, has um, not had qualms about showing its darkest sides. And that's what happened with this young woman, right? I mean, she uh, was arrested and then basically disappeared. Her family couldn't find her, I understand. Then... 10 days later, uh, if I'm remembering her case properly, although there's different cases, so tell me if I'm getting the facts wrong, like they were called and told, okay, you can, your daughter's in the morgue. Yeah, there's a lot that happened there that is, you know, there's the, the different accounts, but the, the thing that is important to keep in mind in her case and the cases that came after it, she was a young Iranian Kurd woman, right? She was arrested because her, this is what they're saying, the, the, her headscarf was worn improperly. So maybe slightly loosely worn, you know, and this is not something that's impossible to imagine in Iran. Many women wear their scarves loosely, right? Um, some people had become strict because of Raisi and worrying more. Some people had been a little bit more relaxed. I mean, it's so absurd to think, you know, you have to wear this in this exact way. What if your head brushes against a tree or someone knocks it out? You know, it's it's just madness, right? The idea of to what degree is a scarf worn loosely? To what degree isn't it, right? It's, it's really messed up. So the accounts of what happened to her are horrific, right? Um, she was tortured and murdered and uh, her family, bless them, and some amazing young women journalists brought her case to the forefront and had people hear it because they were giving all sorts of weird reasons. Oh, she had a heart condition. Oh no, she died by herself in the hospital. Oh, these bruises weren't really bruises. I mean, just the usual craven lies upon lies upon lies. So that happened. And of course that was enough to get many of us very angry because it's not the first time that's happened. Almost all of us have had someone in our family or someone we know something like that has happened to them, you know, or so this is a, it's not because it was exceptional. It's because we know this so well, it's happened for so many generations since the Islamic Republic was formed. So then after that, there were protests. And then that's when you see other Iranians like Nika, like Sarina, like all these women who also in were basically 
all sorts of uh, stories were created around their um, being arrested, you know, and the most disgusting part of all is that not only does the Islamic Republic want to say that, you know, these women were protesting and, and they were punished. What happens is once they die, they try to cut off the families from their bodies. They tried to create all sorts of disgusting tactics so that people can't get to their to, to even give their daughters a proper send off right when they're dead. So the the style again of torture and evil here is so extraordinary. So and there's many more Nikos Sarina, there's been so many more cases I encourage everybody to look up these um, people are making these like uh, sort of images with all the people that have been killed, but there's even more than that. There's even more people that are in prison dying right now. The other day I saw someone say, well, there's tear gas in Iran. They're, they didn't kill anyone, but they're just, you know, putting tear gas all over the prisons, right? Well, a lot of us who've been in protests for a long time know that even tear gas can be lethal. So the Iranian government also does another thing that I have to mention too, is sometimes they make sure that these people aren't dead. So they don't want to add to a death count, right? So they know that, 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 that killing is immoral or will be perceived as that. Again, I'm putting this all in quotes because there is no morality here. So they will do their best to get somebody to the brink of death, but not dead. And then it won't be part of a death count. So this is like what we're talking about here. This is the level of danger and, and sinister and true evil. Um, I so appreciate all this context, and I want to make sure, um, especially for our listeners who might not know these names, that we're actually saying these young women's names, um, and also to make sure that we're saying them correctly so that people can go and find the hashtags and find the names and read more. And I want to say also, um, Sue, like, I, I get those stories mixed up at the in introduction that Masha was, was uh, reported dead almost not long after her arrest, and it was uh, Nika whose family looked for her for a long time. No, right. it, it, we, we right. put this a little bit purposely vaguely when we talk about it because, so don't okay. worry. Okay. Don't get it right. But the, one of the reasons we sometimes put this stuff vaguely is because we ourselves are cut off from the exact circumstances. This is by design again and how they're, and sometimes you find out a month later, even more horrible details of what happened. So that's why we're reliant on family accounts, but families can sometimes be very scared to speak openly. Um, journalists have been almost instantly imprisoned. There've been at least several dozen, maybe in the hundreds now, possibly even more journalists who've been imprisoned. So you see when Iranians say, please be our voice and all that, they're really trying to ask for our press and our workable systems to air their stories. But the truth is all of us are in the same boat as them because when you're dealing with a truly evil authoritarian government, it's chaos. So there's there's some details with Mahsa, with Nika, with Sarina, with a lot of these cases that are muddled, but it's not muddled because they were less severe. It's muddled because they were probably way more than what we think. So right. I want to be clear about that because it's OK, the confusion, actually, it's. Thank it you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I mean, mean, but I should say. We are we're, we're what facts we are working from and are from. I mostly was using New York Times reporting on these cases, which is the best that I've found so far. No, it, it's fine, and that's totally okay. But I, that's actually a really important discussion to bring up, you know, because at many times and many points, 
even the best journalists at the New York Times, the Washington Post, the BBC have been incorrect and they've had to issue updates. And sometimes people in Iran get angry and think this is suspect. Why are they issuing updates? And then people out here will say the same thing as a suspect, but it's because getting solid information and trying to report facts is very difficult. But it's also important for activists to be consoled because those of us who've been literate in this for a long time, it's not like it would go again, you know, it's not like we're being regime apologists and we're like, it wasn't that bad. It's actually that it was probably way worse. Right. And so that's where, you know, um, there's almost, and, and that's where I think the media being under uh, fire is really correct, in my opinion, because they sometimes, in, in, in wanting to be very clear with the facts of a case, sometimes they inadvertently underplay the horrors. And so it gets very frustrating for us to hear it because we have a bunch of friends, relatives, people like that on WhatsApp or, you know, DMing us with, in, in the midst of internet outages and stuff, telling us things that don't look like what's being reported. So, but it's, but it's almost always, I've said to people for many years, you can always assume it was way worse than what you think. I think, again, that context is so helpful. And um, especially for our listeners who, right, I'm, I'm looking at these names and we're using their first names. Um, and I want to just, so it's uh, the first name we mentioned, Masa Amini, which I hope I'm saying correctly, Gina Amini, Masa Mas. And that that um, that young woman died on or around September 16th. Uh, that was followed on September 20th by the disappearance of Nika Shakarami. Um, um, it's funny. We also have to sometimes look up the pronunciations because depending on what region, like my mom, who's from Hamadan, pronounces everything quite differently than my father and his relatives. So these are regional pronunciations, so they can okay. sound very different. That's Even helpful. Kurdish pronunciations are completely different, you know, okay. which is, yeah. So that's, that's okay. And that's actually a point to, to also air and talk about, I think that's important. Thank Sometimes you. people will say, how come these Iranian public figures are saying the names weird, you know, but Iran is like a country like the US, you know, the way that there'll be a Southern accent or a dialect here or something like that. We all have them, you know, and, and sure. sometimes we can hear where it comes from. Okay. So, um, Nika Shakarami. Um, and then the third name that we've been tossing around um, is Saina or Sarina, um, um, Saina Azmailzadeh, um, who was a protester in Karaj, which is west of Tehran. And she died after security forces repeatedly struck her in the head with a baton, or, or this is the fact that we have extracted from the mainstream reporting that we've been reading. And the last two women that I mentioned were both just 16 years old. Um, right. So I think that this is also um, one of the intense one of the intensities of the horror here is that the women that we are seeing being struck down um, or disappearing are just really young women. And I wonder if you can like youth is so often like a mark of strength and protest. And, you know, we see young people mobilizing all over the world. And here, young young people are the focus of the government's aggression. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and I'm just again like looking at this Sarina Esmailzadeh and Nika Shakarami. I think Shakarami. I again, it depends on the dialect of the family. Sometimes I'll hear and it's different. Yeah, the government is demonstrating that their their worst fear has been teenage girls or young women in their twenties. So basically, Gen Z. This is um, they, it's 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 very 
almost hilarious in some point. But these, but I don't want to just say that that is comedy because these women are fighting in a way that's really extraordinary. Um, and it's amazing. And there are, it breaks my heart because these women should have been able, these young women should have been able to be at home enjoying TikTok or whatever it is, like every teenager in the world. And they've sacrificed their lives. And it's very bittersweet for us. I talk all the time about how hopeful and hopeless I feel because a part of me thinks this is so horrifying that we're sacrificing young people like this, you know? And, and we all have felt this with generations of protests. We felt this way in 2009's green movement, you know? And I feel like some people are forgetting about that. And that's also a very important movement to talk about because just because it wasn't effective because the authoritarian government of Iran is so evil, people keep not honoring the memory of Neda or a lot of the other really heroic protesters who were very much like these. So it's important to recognize that people have been risking their life for a very long time here. And what's saddest here is that these are, you know, some of the youngest and they're, I, I, I hope that the change that they wanted and want will happen, but it's very hard to say with an authoritarian government that's evil and smart and has often proven to be a few steps ahead. Um, and so it's, it's just heartbreaking. Um, I think a lot about the first time that I went to a protest in LA when I was nine years old. This is, I went to a few before that. In fact, I was in my mother's womb in some of the protests in Iran that she went to, which were anti-hijab protests. And then I was very young. Um, so we left Iran when I was still, you know, very, very young. And we had a very stereotypical fleeing Iran experience that really was like overnight, my parents left with dishes in the sink and then got on a bus to Turkey and then, you know, went from there to Europe and had no place really to go. So not everyone, not everyone when they talk about fleeing or leaving has this exact narrative, but it was closer to the beginning of the Iran-Iraq war. And my parents, you know, being in their late twenties and early thirties had no idea what to think, you know? Well, speaking um, of that first protest, you write about that in Brown album, Essays on Exile and Identity. I wonder, it's in that uh, first essay, Revolution Days. I wonder if you could just read that passage to us. Yeah, I, I would love, I'll read this, that's fine. Um, sorry, I'm a little emotional, but I think that's no, of course. also important to show because something that's been just disturbing me is things being so polished and it's okay for things not to be polished. <laughs> well, that is certainly um, true on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a relief when it's like that actually, because people also, but I get it. They think so many things are doctored for optics and mm. of course that makes sense. Um, Okay. This is from an essay I wrote quite a while ago for the Daily Beast. Um, I think the must have been, this is slightly edited, but it was, it appeared over a decade ago there, but it talks about a protest experience I had that really marked me for the rest of my life. Um, in September, 1987, our family went to one of the many Iranian protests of that era a demonstration at the Westwood Federal Building against the visit of then President Khomeini to the United Nations and US involvement in the Iran-Iraq war. Thousands of demonstrators shouted while cars honked in solidarity or plain mischief. 
I, with my head full of My Little Ponies and my new favorite show, Rags to Riches and Playground Politics and Forced Boys to Crush On, truly didn't care. But suddenly a speaker under the spotlight set himself on fire right in front of us. I later found out that it was the Iranian writer and anti-war activist, Nusha Farahi, a young man. He died two weeks later. I could not stop thinking about him. Around this time, I devolved into a nervous person. I started having insomnia episodes. Then I began sleepwalking. Then I developed some condition where my limbs would shake uncontrollably as if I had been electrocuted at night. And worst of all, I began having panic attacks about death. My father tried to console me by promising that when I got older, I would stop caring about dying so much. Adults joke about wishing they were dead. Maybe they even mean it, he said. I started to pray. I prayed, truly, godlessly, mimicking the generic gestures and treacly platitudes I had learned from those quivering kids perched by their windows in movies for time to pass fast. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Um, Porchista, thank you so much. I, as you know, um, am a big fan of that book and um, really appreciate your reading from it. And you were also, I've been following your various social media feeds and your posts about Iran. And I know that you also recently edited an article by two Kurdish activists, um, Ala Riani and Rezan Labadi, in the LA Review of Books, where you're an editor. Um, and they too talk about Masa Amini, Gina Amini, who's killing, as we mentioned earlier has served as a flashpoint for these protests, and they call her Gina Amini. Um, and I wonder if you can just talk a little bit more about why that's important and why referring to her as Gina, um, why referring to her, I'm sorry, referring to Gina as Ma as Masa makes her a, quote, token molded to suit the majority in this revolution. Yeah, it was very important for me to have this essay by Kurdish activists there from the beginning I had heard Kurdish people speak out and their voices were almost instantly erased. They were not getting traction. And that's because a lot of the Iranian public figures are, and I hate using this term because it's kind of weird, Persian Iranians, you know? So this ethnicity in Iran is very complicated, you know, and it's a very long discussion, but again, I think people know what we mean when we say that, right? So non-ethnic, minority Iranians basically had dominated a lot of the conversation. So it was really important to me to make sure that we talk about the Kurdish angle here, that Kurds were being sort of not necessarily erased or silenced, but their viewpoints didn't have a platform that I could find. And so I just put out a call on social media saying that I would love to have your work out there. Now I'm not Kurd, but we've had a lot of family friends who are, and for years we've had very lovely discussions and I've met many and they were often very disturbed by how Iranians would talk about Kurds and there would be Kurdish jokes and things like that. Iranians do this for, with all sorts of people, you know, it's would be akin to like Polish jokes in the US. If you're an insider, maybe it's okay to somebody, but for the most part, of course, it's not okay. You know, this is its own form of bigotry, obviously and can be very hurtful for people. So there was a lot of people when, when now Massa, the reason that, that in the press, they say they've been using Massa so much is because her brother was saying her name is Massa Amini. 
Now, of course, he's Kurd, but was probably saying that because that's the official name in Iran. But the name her mother gave her is Gina Amini. And that's the name she was known in her family and to her friends. And so to me, it's very important to also say that name. And now I don't use Mahsa at all. I had to learn that too. You know, we know about the double naming. It happens with many groups in Iran. That's, that's not unusual. But some Iranians themselves overlook this and realize and forget the importance of this. So I, if we could do it again, I wish it was just Gina Amini, though I respect why her brother said that and why that was used by journalists in the press. Gina Amini, Massa Amini, I think you can use both hashtags and that's fine. I don't think it means if someone leaves out Gina Amini that they hate Kurdish people or anything like that. But what is really important to me in, in this work by these activists that I just, and I, it was a very difficult editing job in that I wanted their integrity to be completely intact. And I had to do very speak very strongly to my other editors. And I had to be very, very clear that we need this essay to be exactly as they want it. And I, I said, I don't care if this alienates me or you guys think I'm difficult or an asshole or whatever, but this is important to me. And amazingly, <laughs> you know, they were great about that. So thank you to my co-editors at LARB. And I, and I encourage everybody when you have work from marginalized people to advocate in that way, you know, and to say it's very important that we don't care about house style or we don't care about a traditional essay or stuff like that. You know, in Brown album, the last album, the last essay in this collection, I wrote to be unpublishable. That was part of the design of that final essay because I'd gotten very frustrated by the earlier essays in the book that were to me, because of the mainstream media that they appeared in, they had to be very much, not, I don't wanna say compromised, but they were written in a certain style. I had started to learn the exact formula of a New York Times essay, a CNN essay, all that stuff. Well, let's talk about that mainstream media and how they're doing in America uh, covering this story. What's working? What isn't working? Who's doing a good job? Who isn't and why? It's a real mess at the moment. And it, there will be different waves of this, you know, but today, Monday, October 17th, I know in my various groups, we're discussing how com complicated and frustrating it is at the moment, because there's a lot of people that are opportunistically taking over the narratives. And these are people we've never heard from before, or these are people that were fringe right-wing neocon characters who suddenly have made Iran their platform. I'm talking about non-Iranians mostly. Um, and they are speaking over a lot of people. And, but of course, some people in Iran and in the diaspora, which tends to often be, and when we say the diaspora, there's many diasporas, but often people are referring to the diasporas in California and specifically Southern California and LA, where most, you know, the biggest population outside of Iran is. Um, that diaspora has historically leaned conservative and sometimes all the way to neocon. And sometimes their positions have been very troubling. For instance, I remember more than once, many, many leaders in those, in those communities advocating for the bombing in Iran, advocating for stricter sanctions, advocating for all sorts of things that would abuse people we love in Iran because they wanna to return to Iran to their mansions, you know, and that's it. So. Now, those people are often very well connected to media. So media, you know, journalists sometimes don't know who to go to and they go to the loudest voices and the voices that kind of sound right. 
And so there's a lot of people, you know, I, I personally am very clear about my positions. I tend to swing more left, definitely left in the American terms, and certainly now left in the Iranian terms too, actually, because these things that didn't always merge are merging more in a kind of complicated way. But, you know, I was saying today on, on social media, I've been seeing posts that are very pro-sanctions now from people that I would respect saying that, no, we need to now um, support, you know, sanctions. Sanctions are the way that we'll win now because it'll put pressure on the mullahs, the clerics. Now, this is wild to me because it sort of feeds into the clerics' inadvertently feeds into their, their words because they like to appear, oh, we're so poor, we're people of the earth, like salt of the earth, you know, we are good Muslims. They, there's many people that believe Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran, which again, who's not getting enough hate, by the way, <laughs> he should be a focus here because um, he's probably the most evil person on earth. Um, Khamenei, some people believe is one of the richest men in the world. And I know why they believe that. I mean, all these mullahs and clerics have children who are educated abroad. They have sports cars. They have all, this is very easy to verify. If they hate America so much, why are their children everywhere in America, you know, living it up, <laughs> you know? So this Ahmadinejad was the same thing. I mean, he would pretend that he was a nobody. So like of, of the people, but it was bullshit too. So these guys are just geniuses at certain optics. But we know Iran has caused massive problems in the region with its neighbors. You know, this is this is a fact. It's it's a, a verifiable fact. Iran has had money and it comes from very fucked up. Sorry, I don't know if we can say fuck. Oh, no, no, we definitely fine. can. <laughs> fucked up alliances with with like Russia, for instance, right? I mean, Russia, China, Iran have had a very disturbing alliance there. And yeah, that's so, something we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, these, these uh, various authoritarian governments around the world that are sort of starting to work together in a troubling way. Um, yes, exactly. It's, it's, we're in a new era of really terrifying authoritarianism. And that's why I encourage activists to still fight and know you'll get death threats and they're, and, and it might be from sources you don't expect, and it might look like certain things that aren't there, but it's really important to have your truth out there. And this is why this movement is very important. The Iranian youth, all Iranians, all want freedom to express themselves, to have the freedoms that we often here in America take for granted, you know? But of course you can argue even here, people sometimes are speaking their minds and having all sorts of problems, you know, because of it. I mean. I was just talking a few months ago with my agent about things like morality clauses in publishing, you know, that now mm. exist. And it's like, you know, in a way I can say, well, that's fine because that's there for like the racists and the bigots and stuff like that. I'll be okay. But it's also sort of weird because like we are public, like Harper Collins is owned by Rupert Murdoch, <laughs> you know? So who are we really protecting, right? And who is the good? So America has its own problems. I mean, I, I would put, you know, Iran, China, Russia, America, Israel in the same category because of human rights violations. Look at how people, these prisons, that should tell you all the things they have in common. That tells you a lot about a culture. Look at how police operate in these places. You know, my boyfriend is a Chinese American journalist 
who was there at the Hong Kong protests and was there for many months actually. And he sees so much in common with that as what's happening here. Um, so it's like, you know, we're in a era, I think a, a sort of like golden age of a certain type of activism, but it's also heartbreaking and dangerous. I still think all the time about some of the activists that have been associated with BLM movements, right? Who died, you know, killed themselves, you know? And we just know that wasn't the case. There's literally evidence. Their mothers, just like the mothers of people in Iran are begging people, please believe us. So I just wonder why, why people aren't hearing those people and why are, I don't know, maybe the media thinks it's a sort of benevolence to not let people see the horrors. And there was many times I, I know on social media, sometimes I don't wanna put certain images on there because it's just too hard. Or when I was telling someone yesterday about the torture that my relatives had, not just under the Islamic Republic, but also under Savak and how queer people were, you know, I have queer relatives that were vaporized by the Savak or relatives that were tortured in prison forced to eat their own feces and worse things, way worse things that are really unmentionable. My Iranian friends and I talk about it all the time and it, it really poisons your spirit in a way that I, I mean, yeah, I, so I'll, I'll, you know, I'm sorry if I'm speaking sort of in a complicated way, but I think it's important for people to really understand just how evil the Islamic Republic of Iran is and how this is not Islam and how it is. And that's why all sorts of Muslim groups and Muslim countries distance from Iran because they know that. This is just pure evil. And it has a lot in common with this most grotesque types of capitalism. And you know, these, these mullahs love to make money you know, when they imprison people, so often people can be paid off or in the past they really could, you know, they would have the optics, let's, let's arrest an American, an Iranian American academic or these kids that have been hiking, you know, not in the right spots in Iran, right? Let's have them there, but they're worth it to them, to, to, to the Iranian government because why? They get a, the, that bail money. They are desperate for the six figures there, six figures there, six figures, you know? It's disgusting. This is beyond secular. I mean, it's like, so I hope people see this. Porchista, thank you so much for joining us. And we do strongly recommend that our readers go check out Brown Album and the rest of Porchista's work. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!